0: Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio podcast. This is session 345 you're listening to. My guest today is Chuck Zwicky, making his second appearance here on Working Class Audio. His first appearance was on episode number 92 many, many years ago. Chuck is a producer, engineer, and mixer. He has worked with a wide variety of people, including Prince, Soul Asylum, Mandy Moore, the Rembrandts, and many, many others. And it's always great to have him on the show. It's always great to talk to him in general, actually, because whether you're on the phone, on an, in an interview, in person, there's always a deep conversation to be had with Chuck. So super happy to have him back. Chuck Zwicky coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about my favorite hobby, field recording. I have to say right from the outset, field recording is such an inspirational thing to me and I have such great respect for our fellow audio professionals who do it for a living one of my favorites out there doing his thing is George Vlad who's been on the show and I'm going to put a link to that show episode number 289 that'll be in the show notes check that out George has been a big inspiration to me and I continue to follow him to this day he does great stuff and when you see what he's up to I think you'll be inspired as well It makes me laugh because I have a friend that jokes, when Matt's not recording, he's recording. Referring to my, of course, fascination with field recording. So I don't do field recording for a living. It is a hobby. What I find fascinating about it is just the art of capturing things out in the world. Whether it's, you know, a body of water, a machine, an animal, an ambience, um you know, whatever it is. I just find it really, really interesting. And you might say, well, okay, well, what are you doing with your recordings, Matt? Well, what I do is I capture them and I come back to my studio and I listen back and I might do some post-production cleanup on some of the stuff and then I dump it into this piece of software that I'm sure if you do field recording, you know it like the back of your hand, Soundminer comes in different levels that you can spend for different capabilities. And I basically dump these sounds into SoundMiner. I add metadata, label them, and put them away. And sometimes I revisit them. And sometimes I'll be in the middle of a mix and I'll think, oh, I wish I had this kind of a sound. And then I realize, wait a minute, I do have that kind of a sound. That's in my library. And I'll go and I'll fish it out and Maybe I'll add it into a mix in some capacity to augment something. Other than that, it's just really the thrill of capturing these sounds and playing them back. I know it's a totally nerdy, dorky thing to do, but I I don't know, I just love it. It's really fun. So when I go places, I do my best to remember to bring a recorder with me. And I go in phases where I, I just completely forget that I have all this stuff, and then I realize, wait a minute, I'm going to the zoo today, like we did today. My family and I, we went to the San Francisco Zoo. I thought, well, I gotta bring a recorder with me. Who knows what I'm gonna capture? So I might, you know, bring a number of things, like I have a a great DPA headset, a binaural headset that I attach to an iPod touch. I, I was gonna bring that, but unfortunately I hadn't charged the iPod. I know, an iPod, believe it or not. And so I ended up bringing a Sony PCM-D100, which I learned about from George Vlad. So I bring that, and I just walk around with that, with a little Rycote shock mount for it. And I'm sure if you're a participant at the zoo and you saw me walking by, you'd probably think, what is that guy doing? It's not that big, but it's big enough that it doesn't look like a cell phone, and it's certainly not a camera, because, you know, you got the little Rycote a dead cat or softy at the end of it. And I didn't know what I was going to capture today, but lo and behold, we go over to the primate area and there is chaos that erupts spontaneously where the apes are. I don't know what was going on, what the, the social dynamic was, but I was there. Got it and it sounds, it sounds disturbing, actually. So I got that, I got the sound of a steam train, I got a couple rounds of that. I got the sound of some press penny machines, the gears and that. You know, whether I use that in the future or not, I don't know, but Capturing it is just part of the fun. Now, the other part of what I find enjoyable about field recording is time travel. I've, ta- I've joked about time travel. When you hear something and it transports you to a certain time. I still have my Sony Mini Disc Recorder from, I don't know, 20 plus years ago. Still works off of a single AA. And I have a bunch of recordings when my wife and I went to Europe, traveled around. We didn't have kids at the time. So we were going everywhere and I was capturing all kinds of ambiences and sounds. And I forget a lot of that trip, honestly. But when I hear those recordings, I remember exactly where I was and what the circumstance was. It's the most bizarre thing. So if you decide to get into field recording and you wanna treat it like a hobby, great. If you you wanna treat it as a business, great. But it's a lot of fun and it gives you another perspective, especially if you're one who is, you know, mixing or mastering or recording guitars, bass and drums or maybe you're in game sound and film and you're doing something that has no relation to that or post production whatever and you're you're not on that end of of the of the sound game it's fun and it's a nerdy thing to do i love it and i can't tell you how much i enjoy it and you know it's funny too there's a lot of great companies out there Like, uh, I'll just drop some names. They're not sponsoring the show or anything, but like Loam Mics, L-O-M. I'll put a link in the show notes. This guy that makes these mics, fantastic. Not that expensive. They do a lot of cool things in ways that the typical studio mics we're all used to don't do. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Field recording. Not much more to say about that, but something I love to do. And I just wanted to share it with you. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Chuck Zwicky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. (laughs) Chuck, welcome (laughs) back to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you back. I always love talking to you. I always learn something from you. I always walk away going, hmm, let me think about that. And uh I'm just so happy that you're back and that you're a fan of the show enough to come back. So thank you.
0: That's my pleasure.
1: For the audience, Chuck and I had a, a good conversation a few weeks back, talked about some of the things we wanted to talk about. One of those things being collaboration. In fact, you said it in your notes. You said everything I do is collaboration. So obviously in the in the Zoom age, in the COVID age, we're doing a lot of remote collaboration. In so many different ways, including interviews like this. How has your remote collaboration gotten better or worse? or What's that process
0: like? Because I basically have my mix room here, I do way too many sessions unattended. It's been a way of life. I've not really been completely happy with that arrangement. Just before the COVID thing, I had an artist who I was mixing, happened to come to New York, sat down. We went through the mixes in 10 minutes, got everything exactly the way he wanted to hear it. He was able to make decisions in person. That, you know, that's, that's kind of where we come from. Since COVID, it's been more remote stuff, slower pace for people. Nobody seems to be that much of a hurry to put something out because they don't know what's going to happen with it. Mm. It's been one of those situations where if you have the elements that make a good collaboration in place, nothing changes. You know, those things are like you, you you trust the artist you're working with. They trust you. You have an idea, a common goal. You're able to help steer the thing together. Uh, if you don't have those things, it's the same as it's been even face-to-face, although people are a little different when they're not face-to-face with you. How do you think they're different? As you know, in the age of social media, it's impossible to, to read tone, for example, in a correspondence with somebody, or they're not there to understand why you made a decision. And in some cases, some artists, if you make a change... They take it very personally, like there's some some reason you did that. And you might have just been, oh, you know what? I completely forgot I was meeting that. I was going to bring it in halfway through and I didn't. And being there in person, it's very easy to diffuse situations before they build. Having this remote thing is very difficult. I mean, for example, I just finished a project I've been working on for 10 months where the artist wanted me to produce his album. And we had never worked together before, but he just liked what I'd done. And he, he, he liked me as a person, wanted to work with me, thought I had good ideas. He'd send me his demos of his songs, which were rough, vocal and guitar. And I'd like, you know what? I think I could come up with an arrangement here. So I ended up editing the song around, changing the structure of it, and then being the band, playing the guitar, bass, drums, keyboards, everything on top of this and creating what sounds like an album. And he was a little nervous because he didn't know what was going on. Like I was just sitting here doing my thing, right? And uh, finally got a chance to play him, them, and he was floored. He decided at one point that his current management company wasn't sufficient to handle this project. He wanted to get it to a major label and be able to handle it. It could handle it in a better way. And I thought, well, that's great. That's really promising. And we only had done a, not a full album. So I end up writing two more songs for him, which I thought would really bookend the album emotionally. And I told him about him and he's really excited. He goes, just send them to me. And I said, Well, let me just finish him up. So I finished him up, called him on the phone. You know, this is a couple of weeks after we'd last spoken. So I said, Well, I've got these songs if you want to hear them. And he says, Well, I'll think about it. I'll think about it, okay, what, what's going on? And he goes, Well, I just have to tell you, I'm working with another producer now. I'm recutting all those songs. I'm like, Really? Why? Oh. I know. And uh, 10 months, and I thought we were on the same page. Things were going well. Last I heard from him, he, he loved the, the work, right? But it's like, okay, he felt uncomfortable with this process. He wanted to work with somebody in person. I can say, okay, there was COVID. So <laughs> there is COVID. It's not really possible for us to be sitting in the same room. But that's a really much more common occurrence than you might think. And I think it's important to talk about it because you hear about situations like this from a very one-sided perspective from people. Somebody's upset that somebody fired them or somebody quit a project. But you have to understand where it comes from on both sides. If you don't want this to happen again, like I I thought I'd read this guy clearly and he'd understand we were putting this project together. And then once it was done, we'd be able to deal with it, changes, whatever we needed to do. I had overestimated his ability to work abstractly like this. And that's on me. I've been so buried in doing this stuff that I I wasn't really keeping him abreast of every possible change. So from his perspective, there's a bit of alienation. There's a bit of loss of control. There's a bit of distrust brewing. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing this. And What decisions have you made? It's an interesting example for me because it's been a tough time for people being so isolated during this, right? And the collaborative process requires Things to be spelled out that in person you would never think you need to spell out. An interaction, a, a gesture, a, a facial expression makes a big difference in how somebody hears something that you're saying to them. But that's been a really an educational process for me. On one hand, it's all the seven st- or the 107 stages of grief. It's all of them. <laughs> you go through that and you're like, okay, wow, I thought I was going here and now I'm not. So I thought this was happening, but it's not. So you're sort of like, how did that get to be that way? Let's try to figure that out. But then certain cases, you simply can't unravel it. I woke up the next morning and the first thought I had was he made this decision because he thought I wasn't collaborating with him, but he made a unilateral decision to work with someone else. But the entire 10 months had never sent me a single note about anything he wanted changed. So that was a little tough to grapple with. It takes two to tango here.
1: It's not Mm -hmm. entirely on you. He should have at least said something in an ideal world. This is interesting because I I spoke uh, in my last episode with Tim Palmer. I mentioned to Tim that one of the things that I like to do when I get mixed revisions from people is to have a a video check-in with them or even just a phone call just to say, Hey, in your notes, in your email, you said this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really meant this. And actually it's just 2% of what I said because I can get really wrapped around the axle is some like to say, or the flagpole or whatever terminology you want to use. I get a little upset sometimes when I read somebody's mixed notes. I have to check in with them to really get to the heart of it. And every time I do, it just diffuses everything inside of me. And I'm like, oh, I totally understand what that artist is thinking now or what they're trying to convey to me. And that's
0: part of it. And that's a big part of it is just making assumptions about what they're saying, not feeling that there's enough clarity in that, them making assumptions about the choices you're making. All this goes back and forth. Like I said, the last session I did before COVID, the artist shows up and we just went. It was joyful. It was fun. It was like he'd hear something and he'd say, oh, try panning it here. That's where I, that's where I think it would, you know, I really want to hear this instrument there. And you would move it and it's, oh, yeah, I get exactly where he's coming from, but it's real time. You know, mixed notes are an interesting... Interesting thing, I I was mixing something for a, a young group of producers who were producing an artist, and strangely, they would send me notes about the mix, and then she would send me notes about the mix separately, and they would include links of YouTube videos for certain styles of music they were aiming for, and she would send things which were completely the opposite direction. There's a bit of conflict between them, apparently. So... You know, she'd send like six pages of notes and when i see six pages of mixed notes i'm like okay there's something else going on here you know it's not it's not just the things that she's talking about there's a general level of dissatisfaction one of the things that i commented to them was you're the producers you need to sit down with the artist consolidate your notes get it in one direction and and send it to me which never happened and it was you know it was i could feel the tension going on between them and then about a year and a half later She recut the entire album with just piano and voice. And when I heard that, I went, exactly. That's what she was saying the whole time in those notes. These are my songs.
1: That mixed note process can be devastating. And six pages you're mentioning here, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I think my jaw would hit the floor and I wouldn't Mm -hmm. even read it. And I'd just call because I'd be like, (laughs) I'm not reading through this. I'm going to read so many things into this you know, how people write and how people interpret.
0: as Maybe as a self-protection mechanism, it forced me to sit back and say, okay, what's really going on? There's something else here, like the famous joke. Besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play?
1: Exactly. You know? Besides that, Mrs. Kennedy,
0: how was, how was the, uh, the parade or whatever? It was? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you're like, okay, I can see there's something, there's a big force going through these notes that have nothing to do with the steps along the way. She's trying to find a path. Through. And once again, it's collaboration. It's like at that point, the three of us were collaborating on this thing. And I was kind of adrift because I wasn't sure where we were going to go with what she wanted to do based on what they had done to the tracks. There wasn't that basic element in there anymore. And what they were doing was exciting and daring, but it, she wasn't getting it, maybe. You know, you get invited into these situations. And I think that there's a certain amount of trust that goes on, and the people are trusting you to to try to interpret what they're doing. And it's important to establish these things. I mean, the thing that happened with this project I'd just been working on, and initially one of my thoughts was, well, it's important not to work with people that you don't trust or you feel like you can't trust them. They'll do something nefarious, for example. And then I I corrected myself and I said, no, it's very important that people are able to trust you, that they can understand what you're doing well enough to be able to trust you with it. So it's not like, I gave as an example, in fact, to this artist, one of my favorite quotes. There's a book that Igor Stravinsky wrote called Poetics of Music. And it's a series of lectures he gave at Harvard University. And in one of the lectures, he said, his process is such an integral part of how he creates music that if someone were to hand him one of his pieces, completed he would think, he would be nonplussed and think it was a hoax. Where did this come from? And, and I realize I have a tendency to do that with some artists where I'm just like, I know exactly where we're going with this. Here it is. And they're like, but how do we get here? This is like magic. We, I needed to walk there with you. So it's a learning process. Even after all this time, it's still a learning process.
1: Do you think that your statement about that, do you think that pertains more to the production side of it than it does the mixing
0: or applies to the entire process? I think it does apply to the entire process, yeah. I think that in the mixing process, it's very prevalent. But in production, there's basically all avenues are open. So you could end up somewhere adrift. You could end up somewhere that makes sense to you because you got there, but doesn't make sense to them because they're still stuck where you started. It's a much more treacherous route when you're producing than it is when you're mixing Because mixing, they'll realize we have all the ingredients right there. Let's just put them in a different proportion now.
1: It's like having a road trip and having the map in front of you knowing that, well, ultimately we're going from A to B, but we could go any which way and they have the map in front of them. Whereas production is like, there's no map.
0: And you say, where do you want to go? Or, hey, I think we could make it over there. Just enough gas, I think. Yeah, let's spend the night here in camp
1: for a week. And then, yeah, I know I'm killing the analogy here. I'm just really beating it <laughs> in, into the ground. That's my style. At least in the mixing process, when remote collaboration is occurring, through COVID, of course, my setup would always be a Zoom call where I'd screen share the Pro Tools screen. And then I would stream audio movers to them separately so that we could speak. In real time. So they could not only see what I was doing, but they could say, okay, yeah, you see the waveform right there? That's that one little guitar part that I was needing you to cut. Can you just mute that? And can we see what that's or hear what that sounds like? Mm -hmm. And that brings them back into the room, at least virtually. And that's worked for me in this past year and a half or almost two years.
0: Yeah, there's some great tools out there. There's a free one called Sonobus. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: Sonobus, huh?
0: Yeah. It's an open source f- f- shareware. It actually compensates for the incoming audio's latency based on how many pings it does a ping of the various servers that are in between the two connections. And it can compensate it up to, they say it's good within about 500 to 1,000 miles. Basically, after that, you're going to have to manually align it yourself. How do you spell that? S Is- O N O B U S.
1: Bus. Okay, I'm gonna. I'll look that up. And audience, I'll include a link in the show notes for you, so we can all check it out. Yeah, that's very cool. I I always love tips of new little tools like that that we don't really think about on a daily basis outside of the traditional gear that we all rely on.
0: I, I never thought I'd be thinking about any of these things.
1: Let's talk about having people there in person. If you're vaccinated and somebody else is vaccinated, do you feel more comfortable with that scenario? No. Fair enough. I guess one has to be extra careful because you never know if your body's immunocompromised in some way or Mm -hmm. you just are one who tends to get sick. One session could just trash you for three weeks.
0: I've had several engineer friends of mine who've gotten sick with COVID and it's been devastating to them. And in some cases, it's the neurological after effects that are really frightening to me. So even though I'm vaccinated and any artist I'm working with will be vaccinated, it doesn't mean you can't carry the virus with you and the mutations, which can either lead to a breakthrough infection. There was a, a study out of Oxford University last week that showed that people, even with mild cases of breakthrough infection, have these neurological Issues And they said in patients who've died, their brains look like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients. So this is frightening to me to think that you can become incapacitated just because you weren't being as careful as you thought you were. And I've had friends who've gotten COVID and had to learn how to walk again. Wow. Yeah. Another friend of mine was released from the hospital. They said he was cured. Nine months later, started losing sensation in his hands and feet and went blind in one eye, rushed himself to the hospital. And uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of neurological side effects that are unknown at this point. And I don't mean to instill fear, but I, I think that caution is very important. And collaboration is going to be difficult under those circumstances because if things keep getting worse, as they seem to be all over, there'll be further mutations that will break through. And just I ask myself, what's the hurry right now? And if anything,
1: you know, what's the phrase? Necessity is the mother of invention. It's going to force us all to think outside the box and really make the best of remote collaboration if if we choose to be careful. And it's funny, I was doing remote interviews long before COVID and I was doing mm-hmm. remote sessions long before COVID. The only thing that COVID did was it sharpened the applications for me in terms of adding audio movers to the mix, really dialing in the setup for Zoom to make that as bulletproof as I could. I'm sure there's going to be even more collaboration tools to come.
0: Yeah, and you've been doing this because of geographical reasons. But even locally, I've
1: chosen in some cases, sometimes out of laziness and just out of convenience.
0: As far as music production goes, it's going to be interesting from here on out. I really wish I could sit in a studio with a group of musicians right now and put together a record and be able to be there every step of the way. We're living in a time of an incredible and fundamental change in how people interact and how they deal with things. Like here in New York City, there are so many empty spaces because people are not going back to offices and people are not going back to their studios and they're not going back to these other spaces. So there's going to be a lot more of this remoteness and a lot more of this kind of it's a big fundamental change. I think it's speaking of thinking outside the box. We're thrown outside the box at this point,
1: continuing a little bit on this on this collaboration thing, managing expectations, managing trust, being flexible with people, et cetera. You know, sometimes if I'm working on a project, talking about managing expectations, if I see any kind of roadblocks in the way or stuff like, oh, hey, there's a l- little bit of a delay. I'm having my electrical updated today or I'm having some changes done to the studio. Studio's down, not to fear, just making some improvements, just letting them know like day-to-day what's going on. I find Absolutely. that yeah. they're like,
0: oh, that's great. Thanks for letting me know. I, thanks for reaching out. That's a good thing for building trust and communication and keeping people you know, abreast of what's happening. Nobody likes to be in the dark and it's mysterious sometimes. I mean, one one of the things I I was really interested in um, talking about was since there's a lot of stuff going on remotely, you know, some of these services like sound better in other places. You know, occasionally someone will reach out to me and they'll want to know if I can work on their project, and I feel like the way people are gauging who to work with has probably more to do with how much money it's going to cost them than whether or not they're going to get a result they want. And it's really difficult to know that. It's impossible. Somebody could listen to something that I did and not know what I did on that. They weren't there for the session. They don't hear the before, the after. The only criteria they have is to say, it'll cost us this much to work with you, but this other guy will work for free. This other guy will pay us to work with us. And that becomes criteria. And there's a friend of mine who runs an extremely high-end audio company. And he gave an interview recently where they, they accused him of being a little dodgy about the price of some of his equipment. And he said, if I mention the price, then that becomes the subject. And I thought, yeah, that's a really interesting point because at the end of the day, you know, there's all these strategies people talk about when you're dealing with clients and getting paid or working within their budgets. I heard somebody ask in an interview that was just really clever. They said, how much are you willing to pay to have this done wrong? because sometimes I get to a project by the time they've got to me they've been through three people that have disappointed them and it's how much can you afford to spend to get this wrong until you work with somebody who's you know willing to work through with all the changes that you want until it's right and not just charge you per hour or nickel and dime you like somebody else might so I think it's a very interesting phenomena like I was thinking the other day about, you know, say some of my favorite composers like, you know, Debussy or, or Eric Satie. They're composing like Eric Satie's at the piano composing his Gymnopédies And you're like, you know, what a beautiful, tranquil piece of music. And you kind of imagine how he's working, how he's thinking about these ideas. Now, do a really hard edit to what happens today with this loud braggadocious social media environment of check out what I'm doing. And you're like, What art's gonna come out of that? Where is that sense of somebody just really in their space doing their thing and without the consciousness of I want attention for all every step of the way? You know, I wanna I want it to be known that I'm doing this every step of the way. And it's I heard this great advice a couple of years ago. They said if you wanna if you wanna do something, don't tell anybody. Just do it. You know, not not in collaboration terms, but just in terms of I hear so many people talk about how they want to do this thing. They're going to do this thing. Their friends will nod and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We like that idea. Kind of emotionally takes them off the hook. They don't have to do it now. They got all the dopamine rush they're going to get from it. Oh, that's a great. idea. It's going to be really exciting. Oh, they thought it was exciting. Great. Now they don't have to do it. It's a little tougher when you're just going to be doing something. And I'm saying this because I have been off of social media since December of last year. So instead of looking at Facebook or anything, I get up in the morning and I I read a book for an hour and I make a cup of tea and I sit there and I read a book. And when I'm done with that, then I'll look at what messages have come in, what emails have come in. But it's like that nagging sensation of what's happening out there on the Facebook is like, it kind of went away quickly, more quickly than I thought it would. And it must be a mess out there because like there's... (laughs) Very few people that like take the time to go, hey, what happened to you? Where are you? Yeah, Now I'm here. If you ever decide to get back on Facebook, I have a tool to stop
1: you. It's called the Facebook Feed Eradicator. I think I mentioned it to you in our last phone conversation. Basically, it's like a Chrome or a Firefox extension. And so if you go to Facebook thinking, oh, I'm going to kill off a little time or the whole day, or get into a big hoo-ha with somebody over something, it stops you because you don't see the feed. You see all the graphics, but then you see a quote, like a Maya Angelou quote or, or an Oscar Wilde quote or something that makes you kind of go, oh, that's an interesting quote. What am I doing here? Oh, I'm right. not going to do this right now. Because it's such a hassle to turn it off, you just leave. I think they've got it for Twitter, too, and, and the other social medias.
0: That's really important stuff. I remember the last time you and I spoke five years ago. At that point, I did not have a mobile phone and did not care to have one. I have one now, but I have absolutely no apps or any notifications from any apps that ever happen. If someone sends me a text message, I'm not alerted to it. I have to go look at the phone, turn it on, open the messaging app and then see, okay, there's messages from people. I continue doing my attention in the way that I need to use it while I have energy to make something happen. And I I found that, well, some of the interactions I, I found that I was having on Facebook were, they're like being bullied. There's an idea on the internet that everything's an opinion. Everybody's exactly the same. We all have access to the exact same things. And therefore, nobody really knows anything. And this sort of death of expertise thing, it just makes me feel like it's a race to the bottom for the people who are the most vocal about what it is they want people to think about what they're doing. And I feel like I escaped something. I, yeah. I don't even, it's so its so interesting, Matt, that after this many months of it, I don't even feel like I'm an outsider to it. I'm just like, oh, it's another thing that's out there that you can have access to if you want.
1: You know, its uh, it's very much like a cafeteria. Mm-hmm. You go through the line, look at the food. It's okay. There's a, there's some stew, there's some chocolate pudding. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to eat everything there. It's, you can selectively say, I want a little chocolate pudding, but I'll just take a scoop. And rather than taking everything off what's available and eating it all the time, mm -hmm. there's some good things to be had from a little bit of anonymity and pulling back and not being available 24 hours a day.
0: Yeah, like I said we're in a we're in a whole new paradigm here. I mean, this is a whole new box we've been thrown out of and it's going to be interesting. You know, much has been written about the dopamine response of likes people get when they post something. And when I've mentioned to some of my friends that I'm not really going on Facebook, how are you going to keep your client base? How are you going to promote yourself? I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I've never been doing, I've never been that guy. Look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing. Unless there's something that was important to me, it's not like I don't, it's not a running diary. It's not my autobiography like it is for some people. But I think that there's a lot of arguments to be made on both sides of this, where how do people choose to collaborate with someone? I get messages from people from Facebook, for example, who are saying, oh, you know, I, I read this thing that you posted three years ago. And it was really interesting. And I was like, maybe some of that stuff is important to people. But I'm at a place where I'm wondering what happens beyond that. One of the things I've been doing during this, the whole coronavirus thing is teaching my nephew guitar. And he lives in Minneapolis and he just got an electric guitar and he's 16 and he's really excited about it. And he's very interested in learning things that are really complicated. And he's interested in learning them because they're flash and they'll impress people but it's kind of like he complains that it's really difficult to do it and i'm like yeah it's a difficult instrument to get good at and you have to really love it and work at it but there's um not a lot of instant gratification for people who are used to a lot of instant gratification i don't want to sound like i'm a curmudgeon back in the old days people really worked hard at what they did but you know i just i, just, I wonder sometimes about when People's attention spans have been whittled down to something very short. Two years ago, I did an album with an artist, incredible singer. This girl's 18 years old. We finished it, but we haven't put it out because the pandemic and we have a big scheme on how to get the music happening out there. But she was very excited about the idea of keeping the songs very short because she felt like people's attention spans were very short. Nobody's going to give you that much time. If you take take that much time from somebody, they're just going to be pissed off. And never listen to your stuff again. And it's, that's a really interesting phenomenon. I'm all for it. It's really challenging to do something in under three minutes and just keep it interesting. And people pad out productions for... Now when I get a song that's six minutes long, I'm like, why did you do that? I don't
1: have that much time.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's great to hear this perspective. Oh, Don't make the songs long because nobody's going to sit there.
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with sampling Makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let me pose a quandary to you. So we have a, a ton of mutual friends that have, including you, gained success with records and artists from a time when the music industry was a very different animal. That animal has mutated into a different animal. I'm trying to figure out how newcomers gain notoriety and more work when that mechanism doesn't
0: exist. I think this is also a very old problem. For example, what we have now working to all of our advantages, because honestly, regardless of whether or not I've worked on albums that are well-known or well-liked, I still have to get through my life with new work and new interactions and new relationships with new artists, and same as anybody. I don't use those other artists' names to attract people to my work. I'm always putting myself back in the beginner's chair. Okay, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I could do, but let's work together on something and see where we can take it. And the only thing I have going for me is that I can take it somewhere, that I've got that experience to do that. Honestly, at this point in my life, I feel like maybe I should have a manager because I really don't want to deal with anything other than sitting there with an artist and saying, let's have fun and see how far we can take this into something that's really good. And I don't want to think about money. I don't want to think about promotion. I don't want to think about it. I just want to be that person to work with the artist and, and bring something there. And in that way, I'm not working with an artist and saying, when I work with so and so, we did it this way. It's like, it's like, no, neither of us know where we're going with this, but we have the tools we need. I have all my rock climbing equipment. I'm not a rock climber. I, I we can make it up the mountain because I have the tools we need, but I don't know what this mountain is. And so I feel, though, to answer your question, that right now people have access to a lot more of what it is any person has done. In the old days, for example, if I had worked on an album, it might be out of print. Nobody would ever hear it. It's not being played on the radio. Someone may discover it. But these days everything's available online so they can find out where something came from. They can provide references of things that they would never imagine before. There's just not as many studios. so.
1: There's not that kind of running into people in the hallway at the studio going, oh, you're working on that record? Oh, let me come check it out. Oh, maybe I'll work with you on my next record. Thought
0: process. And I think of a quote from a friend of mine who said, nostalgia isn't what it used to be, and it never was. So what we have available today in lieu of chance encounters, face-to-face meetings is people can reach out to people they don't know and say, hey, can you work with me on this thing? Or someone can post something and just get a bunch of people interested in it. If we're just talking about people having access to artists and artists having access to people who can help them, I I feel like we're in a golden age, but unfortunately, all the glitters is not gold like that comment about nostalgia not being what it was there's a sense that in the old days things were somehow more valid and yet if you hear engineers who were around like way back i'm sure you've read al schmidt's book and those other things people people been around for a very long time they had just as many doubts and Misses and whatever. I was talking to my, my shrink the other day, telling her you know, about how this collaboration had just went up in smoke. And she was sort of shocked. And I said, we're friends. We had a long chat about it. It's not like there's any animosity. And she was really shocked by this. And I said, it's not like your business. I said, because frankly, in the music business, there's about a 1% chance that something you worked on is going to get out there and have a life of its own. And I said, in your profession, it's if 99 out of 100 patients committed suicide, you'd quit your job. In my case, it's like one didn't, and that's a success. Right. So you can look back on that. You know, after decades of that, you're like, wow, these, all these successes. And you're like, oh, you want to see the graveyard? You know, one of the things I, I, I wanted to talk about was just how do, how do people find each other? Here's, here's an interesting example. So several years ago, I went to a house concert. And there was a singer there who I was a huge fan of. She's a Tibetan singer. She was on Peter Gabriel's label, Real World. Her name is Lamal And I was really honored to be able to hear her perform. And my friend who invited me knew her and he introduced me. And we talked for a few moments. And 15 years later, a few months ago, my phone rings and, and it's her. And she said, I just wanted to see how you're doing. I'm like, Wow. And she said, I'll be honest, she goes, When I meet people and I they give, you gave me your card, she goes, I write down their information and she says, And if they're an interesting person, I put a little flower next to their name. And you had a flower next to your name. So I wanted to call you and see how you're doing, you know? And I'm like, we had a really interesting chat about art and music and all these things. And then the day after my last collaboration blew up, she just wrote to me and said, I'm coming to New York at the end of the month. Do you want to meet to talk about a project? And I'm like, Okay. And as I said to a friend of mine, when one door closes, another one opens. Other than that, it's a pretty good car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting thing. I'd like to just dive into the one aspect of it, of approaching the people that you want to work with. Because I always feel like a little awkward doing it. Absolutely, they get people coming at them all the time, or they probably they have their circle of trust, and you're not necessarily in the circle of trust, and they or they've never heard of you. And who's this guy who's saying he likes our music and he wants to work with
0: us matt, th- th- here's a good bit of advice that will absolutely baffle everybody. Be the sort of person who gets a little flower next to their name, yeah. How do we get the flower? <laughs> took fifteen years for me to hear back. You never know.
1: I almost look at it like dating. If you're
0: aggressive and
1: desperate, people are going to know that. And I think if you play the long game and just try to offer friendship, advice when asked for it, and value to them, at some point they may
0: come around. It's an interesting point, both in dating and in any kind of relationship that you're trying to kindle or pursue, if you're really adhering to a lot of aphorisms and guidelines and things like that, you're going to be a mess. There's just has to, it has to be sort of baked into you at some point where you're used to dealing with these kinds of things. And um, I feel like when I was really young, I always felt like I wanted to work with people whose work I admired. I wanted to be up at their level because I felt like that's where my imagination was because I really appreciated what they were doing. But if I'd look back on that, I'd say you would have wrecked it. You wouldn't have had a chance. There's so much that you didn't understand about what else goes on when you're working, how to deal with people, how to behave, how to understand, how to take all of the ups and downs in stride. That's the sort of thing that people sense. One of the things they always say about dating is look how somebody treats the waiter, right? And it's if somebody's pandering to you too much, you can smell it. And if you're pandering to them too much, they can smell it too and anybody who's successful has been sought out by every level of person and they're really wary i remember when i was really doubtful about music when i was a kid for example playing a variety show in junior high school or something with my put together band for the show and i was nervous about it and my brother told me something that i don't even know if it's true anymore but it made a lot of sense to me then he said People will appreciate anything if it's done well, if it's done sincerely. And it's okay, so maybe they'll see through that. But I got to say, there's as many ups and downs in this business that there's, there isn't a day that passes that I don't doubt that myself. Like, you do really good work, and it's, yeah, it's not tickling that person. It's not going to exist.
1: Yeah, that's like me trying to make a meal for my kids. What do you guys think? <laughs> eh. Really?
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: You didn't see how I did the whole
0: thing with the broccoli. Right. And what do they have to show for it? Hey, dad cooked us a meal and we didn't die. Right. Uh, but, I, but I think um, in that topic, I think there's a lot. when If you're talking about people who are starting out, right? There's always going to be a lot of trepidation. And I think it's impossible to have self-confidence. And I think when people fake self-confidence, for example, the whole social media thing, people will talk about what they're doing in a way that makes it sound like they're really doing something. They're really in charge of it. It's the people that have never done that in their lives that are the people that are making the art that we aspire to, that give them the framework to think, I want in on that thing, whatever it is they're doing. How do you get there? That's a big question. I think it has to do with personality, temperament, ability to work with things. I was listening to an interview the other day with our friend Lid Shaw, Uh interviewing michael Brower, and he asked him what advice would you give a younger self and michael Brower had the best answer he said it doesn't matter i wouldn't have listened he said i had to go through all this to get to understand what's important and it's give yourself a break give yourself the confidence to say okay like when i started doing photography and then i moved to new york and i met this friend of mine who's a very famous photographer and he looked at my stuff and said don't let anybody print this i'm like okay you have to learn how to print it. So I bought some darkroom equipment and learned how to print photographs. And he said something to me that initially depressed me, but I think it's a valuable lesson. He said, it's going to take you a thousand sheets of paper to know what you're doing. There's no way around that. And people talk about 10,000 hours, blah, blah, blah. But for him, it was a concrete thing. A thousand sheets of paper are going in the garbage. Be prepared. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of where where it all comes from.
1: Yeah, Brower. it's clear to me that he purposely avoids comparing himself. You know, he does what he does. I think that there's some value in that, in just ignoring everything and focusing on what you think is the right thing to do. And sometimes I think that as a result, it comes out different sounding and it it shines a light on it because it's, oh, what's going on over there? That's
0: new. I appreciate that very much. And I would encourage anybody who's doing something to take a chance. It, It only hurts initially when you get fired. So take that chance. If you hear something, there have been, I remember when I was young, I was taking so many chances with people's records, doing completely unusual things in the middle of their songs. And for me, I was lucky. Like probably 80% of them were well received. And the ones that weren't, you're like, okay, you know, I thought it was cool. And then maybe you hear a rough mix a few years later and you're like, oh, thank goodness. They didn't put that out. You got to take those chances. I had this thought the other day. Here's how it came to me. My mom, who just turned 96, by the way, she loves to read books about astrophysics and history. And so she's reading this book by Brian Greene called Till the End of Time. And he talks about how when the Big Bang occurred and all this energy created all the matter, and how ultimately it will go back to this singular point of energy. And she said it's billions of years in the future. But she said, the thing about this book that I thought you would find interesting, she says, just read chapter 11 in this book. So I get the book and I'm looking at it and it's about survival and creativity and essentially, it doesn't say collaboration, but things that are discussed in there is that certain artists like, what's the guy's name, Pinker, Stephen Pinker, he says there's no biological necessity to art. It's purely an artifact of choice. But what Brian Green says is that the purpose of art and music, and this is coming from my mom, she's saying, is to bring humans together in some common interest so that they will reproduce. <laughs> and it's a survival mechanism. So art is what draws people together. And I I read the chapter and I'm like, you know, I'd love to ask Steven Pinker, so which senior thesis did you put on the table to, uh, you know, seduce your wife the first time you went out? <laughs> right. So there's a lot to be said about what's it like to be in a collective group of people feeling something like that, and what did that instill in you? It's People have a lot of nostalgia about music because of those strong feelings that they get from it, or got from it at some point in their life.
1: I overheard somebody talking the other day. They were talking about, in the days of when everybody listened to radio, a new song came out. And you heard that song over and over again, and it just became part of the fabric of society. You've worked with prints, so print songs becoming a part of my growing up as a result, when we hear that music today or when I hear that music today, immediately transports me. These days, it's for artists, it's definitely a tougher game, as you said. you're you are competing on in the streaming services for attention from there's so many different things. And those who are screaming the loudest or promoting the loudest, they're the ones that are getting the the primary attention.
0: We think so. We perceive it to be that way. But I I just wonder if that's really what's happening. I have a a friend of mine who used to come over before the pandemic, and she'd always play me stuff that she'd discovered. And she was really excited about And her tastes were all over the map, like super eclectic. And at one point, she said, oh, this is my favorite new band. It's called The Avalanches. And it's not the band from Australia you're thinking of. Avalanches was a one-album band from 1963. It was basically the wrecking crew had a half an hour left over in the studio, so they cut an album, calling it Surf, Surfing Safari or ski surfing, or something. They they were trying to combine these two fads. They did covers of jazz standards, but it was really kind of out there and cool, and it literally sounds like modern-day hipster music. So my friend who's in her 20s is like, this is my favorite new band. And I'm like, I never heard of them. And I, After she left, I'm like, Googling it, like 1963. But it's accessible, same as anything else. She can stumble upon that just as easily as she could stumble upon Dua Lipa. So there's, a, there's hope in there, and unless you're really looking to build up a huge fan base there's that something interesting though what you're saying about the radio for example when i was a kid in minneapolis the radio station like the main radio stations were really eclectic there weren't these nationwide programmed stations you'd hear blues country jazz rock gospel you'd hear all this stuff in one day and i remember when you're being force-fed music like that you're hearing song over and over again you might not like it, but then you look around at your siblings, you know, your sisters or your brother, whatever they're in there, one of them is really into it. And suddenly you're like, what do they hear that I don't hear? But you wouldn't have chosen that yourself. If you were curating your own playlist or going through Spotify or whatever you're going through, you, you would pick the things that you want. And I thought it was really telling that two members of the Black Keys were discussing AI, these algorithms that that choose playlists. And they said they were on a tour. And the Spotify AI didn't pick anything they hadn't already listened to that's different than being forced into hearing something that you don't think is very good and then you see somebody really getting into it and you're suddenly like, oh wait a minute what is that that, that she's hearing that's so great about this song And that's how you keep yourself constantly in an open state of being able to get things without just you know we're you know this term narrow casting where basically as you experience Experience something, you're directed more and more into those things. And the point of narrow casting is really it's just to identify who the listener is more than anything. You know, what can we market to this person who is going to keep following this? What can we feed them next and make sure we know who they are? And without having this sense of having to sit through things we don't like, you know what I mean? Like, You were talking about hearing the same stuff over and over on the radio. You know, How many songs do we sit through on the radio waiting to hear the one we liked? And in that time, we've amassed this whole catalog of sounds and emotions and things that I find myself referencing those feelings now. Like styles of music that I wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards. I can do a very competent thing with them because I get the feeling, because I remember all that. But I wouldn't get there if I was... Left to my own devices, I, I'm afraid that might be the case, that left to my own devices, I would never reach the kind of broad-mindedness that I appreciate about my musical tastes now. It is interesting, though,
1: how hearing music has an effect on us. A couple cases in point. Oh, God, I'm thinking of the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby. I remember playing that song thinking, oh, I'll play the Beatles in the car, kids will love it. Driving my oldest son, at the time he was, I don't know, six, seven, something like that, put on Eleanor Rigby. We're at a stoplight and all the noise kind of comes to a halt because you're at a stoplight and, and things quiet down just slightly. And I hear this crying and I like, I turn around and I'm like, what's he crying about? I said, hey buddy, what's going on? And he said, this is the saddest song. Pull the dagger out of my heart. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about this." I just was like, the Beatles, everybody likes the Beatles. <laughs> and yeah. it really had a deep effect on him. And every time I hear the song by Rush called Subdivisions from the album Signals, mm. I think I was in high school when that came out. I can't hear that without getting all kinds of, I I, I go back to my bedroom at my parents' house and the, all the feelings of high school and weirdness that we have in high school and it just that song. I love that song, but it really weirds me out when I hear it because it's one of the few songs that transports me. And I, as a result, I spend a lot of time listening to jazz music that I never was familiar with in the first place. But these past few years, it's been like nineteen and 1960s jazz sure. from all the usual suspects. I put that stuff on and I'm happy as a clam because there's yeah. generally no lyrics.
0: And it's just music that lets me explore. It's funny that way, right? It can be really oppressive to go back to some place when you were, let's just call it what it is, an undeveloped teenager mm-hmm. whose only uh, ability to recognize the things around them are through these poetic references in a song, which is written by perhaps a slightly paranoid adult who had misgivings about what happened in their suburb as a child or something. And I don't know, have you ever read the book High Fidelity by Nick Hornby? No,
1: I never did. In fact, I think my wife bought it for me and I never read it.
0: So the first line in the book is what came first? The broken heart or the like 10,000 songs about being broken hearted? And isn't it important for parents to be responsible and not expose their children to this constant heartbreak that we are indoctrinated with and that we learn to expect and anticipate in relationships. And then here's your son crying to Eleanor Rigby and you're like, he just learned about all the lonely people that he didn't think about before. And now he's got this reference point of, oh, there's all these people out there that are really lonely. You know, it's an interesting question though.
1: I know we've been getting into some deep topics here and that's what I love about talking with you. I'm sitting here staring at a ton of gear behind you, and I know that there's even more than that. During the remote collaboration, as you've sharpened your tool set and focused it in a bit, I'm sure that there's a
0: lot of gear sitting around that just doesn't get used.
1: Is that accurate?
0: Okay, so one interesting thing that happened, since the last time we spoke, the last time we spoke, I had a lot of gear, same as I do now, but my studio had 48 channels of I.O., and I was routing everything to that. Since then, I've gone up to 84 channels of I/O. Okay. But I have sold off a lot of gear during the pandemic as as a means of survival, and also as a means of saying I don't want to keep going down that road. Let me get rid of these pieces that are that have become crutches to me, you know. And let's just let's change to a whole nother set of tools and see, you know, what that takes, where that takes us. So I have sacrificed a lot of the. Uh, The standards and replace them with a lot of other things that I think are just as exciting as those things ever were but all that gear gets used on every mix there's a closet full of gear of stuff that I just pull out of the rack to see did the world stop turning when I stopped using this? No it didn't and i really I'm faced with a problem in the near future which is that my computer will be obsoleted by Apple. And I will have to replace all of my interfaces with something that's compatible with a new form of the version of the computer. And that's going to set me back anywhere from ten to 40000 or $50,000 to do that. And one of the big conundrums I've been reaching is that there are very few interfaces out there that can actually operate with a deterministic and repeatable latency between the interfaces. I spent three months with a very advanced system that uses the AES67 audio over Ethernet protocol. But every time I'd boot the system, the latency between the different interfaces was different. And if I'm running anything in a mix that's going out and is in parallel, it's going to phase. And they didn't understand why this was important to make that exact. And I sat on several Dante conferences to try to learn Is that system deterministic? And the answer was, we don't know. We've never tested that. We're interested in getting lots of information when it's available on a network. So if this is the future, um, this system works perfectly now, but I don't know how much longer I can kick this can down the road before it becomes obsolete. So one of the things I found is there's an interface that has all channels on one box. It's I think Antelope makes it 64 channels in and out. It's very expensive but they have not been able to answer any of my technical questions about it. So I don't, you know, but in case I had to do that, that would be 64 channels of IO only. So I'd have to say bye-bye to some of these things and strip it down a little bit. Five years ago, I was running 48 channels and I was perfectly happy. So it's all there when I want it. It's all there when I use it. It's I, I just don't even know if people can imagine how I work. <laughs> these days.
1: Yeah. I've heard you talk about, I think you still work in Logic, right? Yeah. And that's got the ability to ping outboard gear to get the Mm -hmm. latency dialed in for that piece of gear. So you have a lot of outboard gear. Are you ever tempted to just get rid of the gear and move on and just consolidate down to the computer? Or do you enjoy those pieces that you have?
0: Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what happens when I'm producing something, say in like this pandemic style where I'm, I am the band and I'm putting the arrangements together. I'm working with just a, a universal audio Apollo eight channel interface just to monitor from and to record guitars and things through vocals, all that. In that case, I don't have access to all these, all this outboard gear. So I'm working just within that sort of in the box framework. and. I'll get the song very close to where I want it, and when I'm ready to do a mix, I turn on this gear. The thing is I've been sitting there so long with this piece of music, feeling the 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 you know getting the feel right, making sure the groove is intact, that the thing's got all the transitions the way I want them the 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 emotional dynamics are right there. And when I put it into my outboard gear. I kind of just start laughing. it's it, it takes on a life of its own and has a tangible liquidity to it. There's a real tactile you know feeling about this music and the way it affects me emotionally. So I'm listening to it for the first time. And I've been living with this stuff note by note for months, and i'll I'll just start working on a mix like it's somebody else's project. And I'm like, oh, this is really good. And what I notice is that even though if I'm pretty happy with it, when I finally get ready to mix it and turn on the gear, my first impression is wow, this is a really good record. You know, I don't often get that feeling when people send me tracks sometimes. It's but I'm like, wow, this stuff all makes sense. But nobody maybe nobody would have that feeling. Maybe nobody would notice that difference if I just put out the version that was done in the box, you know, like it's hard to say. And I don't know if it really matters that much. I mean, I had this thought about a year ago, about all this obsession with fidelity, high res, getting everything's being remastered. Every record you ever knew, you're hearing outtakes and mixes that were never intended to be. And I feel like I, I'm at this point where I think clarity is the enemy of music. Someone remasters something, and people say, Oh, you can hear every little nuance. And you're like, And I've heard some of these remastered records that I may have been familiar with. And I'm like, You know, but I don't like it. It'll make me feel the way it did. And I reached the conclusion that sound is fragile. You can, the sound can fall apart on something. If something's relying on that extra bit of sound, that certain clarity, that thing, it may not translate to something else, but feel is very durable. If something feels good, it's going to feel good no matter what you listen to it on, no matter what you record it with, no matter what technology you've involved in capturing it, it's going to, it's going to last. It's going to, it's going to have integrity, and it's going to be durable. I've just been going back and forth with that whole notion. I remember one of the things about working with Prince was that his records always had a lot of push and pull on them. Like Things weren't polite. Things weren't clear. Things weren't carved out, as the kids like to think is really important. No, it's he would school me on all of that. He'd pull the faders down and say, look, the drums and the bass have to they have to do this to each other. This is what they're there for. And it's like, don't make space for these things. Just let them, the arrangement is doing the work. That thing's supposed to hip check that thing off the ice for a minute. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think a lot of people are, are get the wrong end of the stick and are like, I've got to make sure I've got the highest fidelity, the best recording equipment, the best microphones, and you'd be appalled at how records that you like were made. And under what circumstances?
1: I'm to a point where I just don't want things to get in my way. Sure. I just want to be able to get into, and I know it's a cliche term, as they say, the flow state. I just want to get into that state. And I'm starting to lose my adherence to, you know, oh, well, we got to use this. I'm going to grab whatever is going to do the job right now and get me to the destination i don't have to i don't have to take the road trip in a ferrari i can take it in a honda and i want to get there right now
0: good analogy because there's a lot of people out there taking ferraris to grocery stores and they're complaining about how the Mm. eggs broke on the way home and it's, it's not designed for any of that and the best car in the world isn't the fastest one that's the one that gets you wrapped around the tree the quickest it's knowing where you're going you could walk you know where you're going a walk is a pleasant thing we're just laying
1: the analogies out
0: like thicker (laughs) than yes come uh, up with an analogy for how we're laying out the analogies
1: well we're almost out of time but i kind of would love to get in true working class audio fashion just get your observations and experiences in the last couple years here with uh regards to money and art and survival do you have any new revelations on on the concept of Trying to make a living doing this,
0: yeah, I'm not sure if it's any more difficult or any easier than it's ever been. But it's obviously the pandemic has had a huge effect on what people are willing to venture, and so that's been a, that's been kind of a you know a real slowdown for me personally. Like I, I've spent more time just doing production work, and like in terms of producing albums and writing music and doing less of the work for other people's projects. I found that it's put me in a very interesting position of giving back. All of the people I admire in the music industry have spent a lot of time working with other artists and giving back on their own dime will take in a project and see it through to the end. I think about somebody, for example, Brian Eno. I think he's done very interesting work throughout his career. But then you get to hear these interviews with him where he talks about when he was working with Devo, He paid for everything. That was all out of his pocket.
1: I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Like he had enough faith in this band and I think in no small way, they didn't really want to work with him because they wanted to work with David Bowie. So he said, listen, I'll take you over to Germany and I'll pay for everything and we'll make this album. We'll present it to Warner brothers and see what they think. And the guy probably at that point in his life probably didn't have very much money at all, you know, in his account, but this was sort of risks he was taking so I feel like I've been pushed into that position a little bit where I'm like, I'll be fine. I can survive, but let's try to re-establish these skill sets that we would want to have if things were in better circumstances. I joked with a friend of mine years ago when the music industry started to take a decline. I said, we're kind of in rehearsal mode for when something happens. And we'll be ready. But I think your question was more about what's the bigger picture of people being able to survive? Can you do this for a living? Was it something along more along those lines?
1: You know, I'm just curious if you've had any new thoughts about, oh, this is how money can work when being an audio professional or, or this is the new way of doing things or that's not working. Any epiphanies about any of that?
0: I wish I did have some, because unfortunately, I feel like I've been spending my time just plowing the same fields. I'm going down the same route working with artists one on one not not pursuing other avenues i do have some friends who've gone on to other skill sets like taking jobs at radio stations doing production work and it's all that kind of audio stuff and a lot of the guests on your show are those kind of people who found a diversity of things to do in this umbrella of audio but i feel like i'm sort of single minded in the sense that i'm still making records for people as quaint and as novel as that might sound where I've found it's not the most lucrative thing from time to time, but I feel like I've really managed to predict the ups and downs well enough to be able to maintain the ability to do it.
1: That's really the trick though, isn't it? Structuring your
0: lifestyle so that the audio can support it, but it can also deal with the ebbs and the flows financially. And emotionally. Yeah. Because it's all the same. It's like, you know, it's feast or famine. Either... Something's great or it's not, you know, something's, you're, you're working or you're not. And it's very inconsistent. I remember uh, the last time we spoke, you know, you'd ask me about, would you do this if you had to approach this as a, as a new person? And it's like, I think we touched on it again. What advice would you give to somebody who, who wants to be able to do this? It's sort of like, if you're prepared to see the big picture of it, to say, okay, maybe this is a temporary setback but also to recognize maybe it's not a temporary setback. Maybe you need to work on this aspect of your skill set in order to get to continue getting to that point because it's a weird business. Like I said earlier, it's like if we were psychiatrists, 99% of our patients would have killed themselves and we would be like happy that one didn't. And it's sort of like can you handle that? I mean it's to paraphrase, you know what Tracy Morgan said, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you it's great to talk with you well,
1: I'll of course put a link in in the show notes with the last interview but for those of you that don't know Chuck you should go to what website Chuck? Mm.
0: my my website is just zmix z-m-i-x dot net and even though I'm not on social media actively. I have an account on Facebook under my name. Anyone can write me through that. I I appreciate when people reach out to me. They can get my email address off my website. They can write to me. I'm not a secretive person. If you have my phone number, give me a call. I would like to talk to people. Well, Chuck,
1: take care. Good to see you. Thanks, Matt. Chuck Zwicky here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, remember, I'm going to say it again. If you've been binging on the shows, you've probably heard this message a million times, but I'm going to say it again. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and or Apple Music and leave a positive review. Write up something if you have the time. That really helps the show, and it tells others that this is a great show to listen to. And If you don't have time, you could just leave five stars and head out, but, uh, that would be appreciated. It always helps the show out, but that's all for me today. Want to thank the crew that includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the working class audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his fantastic voice there at the top of the show. As I always say, connect with me on LinkedIn and until next time, my friends, take care.